0: Leadership Anxiety, yours and theirs. A show that discusses internal
1: and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hello, everyone. We're going to jump right into this episode with our guest today, Dr. Scott McKnight. Uh, Scott is the chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary, but I think most of us know him as the curator at the Jesus Creed blog. Scott uh, started a blog about 15 years ago now. He was one of the first or probably the first biblical academics to actually start a blog. And uh, there's several reasons I love Scott and his writing and his approach. Number one, for pastors like me, he's become such a conduit of helping us um, get exposed to a wider range of theology and theologians. He also writes specifically for church leaders and church members. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a church leader but you're wanting to like grow in your faith or understand the Bible more, literally any of Scott's books are going to help you do that. He writes so concisely to help an everyday follower of Jesus access really rich and really deep theology. I think I've read almost everything uh, Scott's ever written and um, he's just outstanding that way. But one of the things that surprised me about Scott that I've really come to love is he has a irenic prophetic voice His ability to speak to controversial issues, to get involved in things that really matter in the church, without heat or without being a reactionary, uh, I really found fascinating. And probably most famously, he did that when he chose to get involved in what was going on with Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. We covered that and other things in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Scott now.
0: Well, thanks, Steve. I um, I came into blogging very accidentally and had no idea what I was doing, but I was having coffee with a journalist, and he said, you should blog. I'd heard of blogs, but I didn't really know what they were, and I don't think I'd ever visited one. And he said, he explained it to me. So I went back to my office. We were having coffee at Trey Kroner near North Park University. And I went back to my office and I did what he told me. I set up a blog. I wrote a blog post and I sat there for about 10 minutes looking at it. And I was refreshing the comments. It was on blogger or something like that. So I wrote him and I said, Bob, I said, I blogged and nothing's happening. And he said, Oh, he says, nobody knows you're there. And so he explained to me that I need to go to five sites a day and drop a comment and my name will be spread out. So that's how I started blogging. And then my blogging, my blog took off when I had an advanced copy of D.A. Carson's Critique of the Emerging Church. And I started blogging about that. And all of a sudden I was getting blog page views, you know, just ballooning. And from that point on, I started blogging. And that was in 2004, I think.
1: 2004 is when it really started to take off.
0: I, that's when I started. And within, uh, I think within two months, it took off because of that uh, D.A. Carson book. I think that was, I, I could be mistaken on dates there, but it's, that was pretty close. It was right away.
1: You know, our, our listeners are all kinds of leaders. Almost all our listeners would, I think, identify as followers of Jesus, but they're not all church practitioners. But that's how I found your blog is, as a pastor or a preacher, I'm always on the hunt for scholars that um, are trying to serve the church, not just academia. You definitely fall into that category for me. Was that a conscious decision for you?
0: Yeah, and I, uh, and I think, I've been told this, I don't know if it's true, and I don't know anybody who can figure it out, I, I was the first New Testament professor, scholar, who started blogging.
1: I think that is right.
0: So it was right at the beginning and it wasn't calculated because I didn't know what I was doing. So it wasn't like I said, Hey, I got to beat the curve on this. Uh, But because at the time uh, that I was blogging, my Jesus creed book came out, this blog grew up or grew or shifted with me from almost an entirely academic world where, you know, lay people would never have known who I was, to uh, a book, The Jesus Creed, uh, that has, you know, sold far more copies than anyone ever expected, and that put me in contact with lay people and with pastors. And I continued to speak in churches, began to speak in churches, began to speak at conferences, and my entire uh, focus of life shifted from just pure academics and teaching, of course, to pastors and churches and how to help pastors. So I began, Steve, consciously, um, started this right away, maybe 2005, maybe even in 2004, to read books that I thought pastors wanted to read or didn't have time to read. And I, I started blogging about books and topics that I thought were of interest to churches. And I learned hard lessons. You know, people didn't like what I wrote, and they told me because that's what blogs are like. So um, it all shifted toward the church and toward pastors because of uh, because that's what the blog was designed to do.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating because because after that, that's when you wrote Blue Parakeet.
0: Yeah, and all the, those books came as a result. Right?
1: Yeah, Fellowship of Difference is the same. You write you write these books that any church member or church leader can access. That's like a portal into the academic world. It's fantastic.
0: Well, Steve, I believe um, this is a, uh, I've repeated this in in a number of settings. I don't know if you've heard it. I believe that uh, evangelical Christians shifted in the 60s and 70s, evangelical professors, who prior to that wrote books only for lay people, or almost entirely for lay people, And if they wrote an academic book, it was very readable for for college students. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, evangelicals decided, evangelical professors decided they wanted to be academically respectable. And it led to an increased number of academics who could not communicate to people in the church, even though they thought they could. They think, well, I'll just, that's easy to write a popular book. It's five times as hard to write something accessible. Yeah. So um, I've, I've made a commitment when I shift to a new discipline of study that I will as quickly as possible find a way to let that, that, let's say that new area, speak to lay people. So when I turned to Paul, when I went to Northern Seminary as a professor where I am now, the first thing I wanted to do was write a book about Paul for lay people, and I worked it out with my students. The first class I taught on Paul, and it was it was hard because I you know I was having to do it faster than I wanted to. But that's where a fellowship of difference came out.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, let's chase some of these ideas. I think the move you made from an academic audience to a a pastor and a church member audience. Uh, what's your take, Scott? On the unique pressures that church leaders and pastors face?
0: Well, Steve, you know, I'm not, I'm not a pastor, so I don't, I don't experience this. Uh, I, I, I just listen to pastors and most of my friends are pastors and most of my students are either in the working in the church or going to become pastors or already pastors. I think the, in a sense, I think I could put it at, at the level of competition. Hmm. Uh, and I don't mean by that that pastors grow up in the morning saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the best pastor in the world today. Um, it is that there is so much available to everybody that pastors are under pressure to perform in ways they never would have before. You know, if you read Marilyn Robinson. Uh, you know who Marilyn yeah. Robinson?
1: Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You read,
0: you read her novels about Gilead, Iowa and the, and the two pastors. And you think these pastors are pastoring. This is not history, of course, but it's pretty close to reality. These pastors were pastoring in a community. And the only people who knew anything about them were the people in that community. And the only people who knew anything about them were the people in their church in that community so they could there was a certain freedom and a certain safety and a boundary to what they what they could say and the people in their church probably only knew theology to the degree that they listened to that pastor and had friends who talked about other pastors and maybe read some books today everybody wakes up and they can listen to john stott i mean not yeah john stott john ortberg uh andy stanley rick rick warren uh they can listen to craig grischel mark driscoll they can listen to anybody they want any day of the week any minute of the day and these people uh listen to these people speak and they hear they hear dynamic powerful funny potent speakers and they go to their church and they go oh boy he's or she's not so good. So I think there's a competition today that has completely changed expectations. And unachieved expectations leads to frustration and anxiety, of course, about one's condition. And I don't do this very often, but every couple of years I blog about um, stealing sermons, you know, plagiarizing sermons. And whenever I do this, I get letters or phone calls or messages of pastors confessing their sins. And every one of them, I, I've, I've had about five or six do this with me. And I don't like to talk about it because I, you know, I, I'm not trained to do that sort of thing. Um, it's all about expectations. It's all about how good Andy Stanley is and the people in my church uh, I, I grabbed a sermon one time and I was, a, you know, they, they would say, I stole the sermon one time. I plagiarized one time and the response was so amazing. I want to keep that response going. Yeah, And they become dependent upon that. And so that's one area. But, uh, you know, you read Tim Keller and he has provided resources for everything. And you read John Piper and he has resources for everything and you listen to Adam Hamilton and all these success stories all this competency and pastors begin to think that I have to be like that instead of thinking that their responsibility is to be faithful to the lord and to be loving and pastorally caring for the people in their church uh, they're living they're living in a world that is in in large measure totally unachievable
1: yeah yeah, and I'm a lead pastor. I think almost all of us who preach on a regular basis, I think we all hmm, it, it's like the the unending pressure to be impressive, I think is yeah. what what it is. It never goes away. Totally. But don't you think one of the like the one of the simplest ways to mitigate that is to simply become the researcher in residence instead of the expert in residence? Like can't the pastor simply get up and say? I was listening to Tim Keller's sermon. He said this thing that struck me, and I'd like to share it with you. Don't you think that's... Like you're still offering that thought, but you're not taking credit for it. How does that strike you? Uh,
0: totally, That's totally fair. I'm, I'm more a little bit more concerned about plagiarizing entire sermons.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. People.
0: I, I know of a pastor. I, I heard this, and it shocked me when, because I was in the church. Uh, where he was using first person singular stories yeah, yeah. of other people, yeah. and when I mentioned one of these to his wife, she looked at me like i don 't know what you 're talking about yeah. and I thought you were in the story yeah no
1: yeah i've I had i 've had two of those situations, one where uh, pastors get together and they write a sermon, and only one of their wife got on the train, but they both talk about how their wife got on the train i 've had i 've seen that happen oh, the, the other one.
0: Right? I do think that uh, um, that it's that a wise pastor will say, "I'm not the greatest pastor. I'm not the greatest preacher. I get as much out of Tim Keller as you do, yeah. or I get as much out of John Stott. You know, that's my age, or Andy Stanley as you do." And I've learned things from them, yeah. and sometimes I'll share things. But I'm not going to footnote everything I say that comes from someone. You yeah. know, this is a sermon, not a an, a, an academic paper. Yeah. So, but that's expectations, Steve. Competition, um, all that, you know, and that desire to impress. You know, public speaking can be intoxicating because if you say something well tell a story well make a good observation and people have aha moments you're you're pretty pleased with yourself and, and my publisher tells me at, at Zondervan, one of my editors says every chapter has to have an aha theme oh, well that's a lot of pressure
1: hmm.
0: yeah. um I'd rather just write what I think the Bible says. There's no, there may not be anything aha there. You know, it's just people have heard it before. So um, that whole, that, I think the word you, you use, a desire to continue to impress that expression, that's, that's a big issue for pastors.
1: So let's get personal, Scott. You must wrestle with that on some level yourself. You've, you've written multiple books and a selection of them have done very well. What kind of pressure do you face with the next book? Do you have to deal with that same desire to be impressive, or is it different for you? Um, yeah, in some ways, um,
0: one of the odd things about publishing, and I've I've written enough books that I can I can tell this story from both sides, is that pu- what publishers think is going to sell a lot often doesn't and what they think probably won't sell just might and i'll give you a, a couple examples the first one's negative i was convinced by my publisher and the publicists and the amount of energy spent that a book i wrote on mary called the real mary yeah. was really going to sell well and they wanted me to think about not teaching one whole semester so i could travel around the world and speak I was on like 35 radio interviews within 20 days in December. And in my opinion, the book bombed. Uh, I mean, I think it sold 10,000, maybe 15,000. I don't know, but they thought it was going to sell big. Yeah. Okay. So it was promoted and I thought it was some good ideas. I was trying to convince evangelicals that we can have a view of Mary. It's very biblical. And I, I still like what I wrote in that book, but nobody cares about it. I've never, ever been invited to speak about Mary anywhere. I have spoken about Mary when I wasn't asked. <laughs> uh, but and, uh, here's another one. When, when we wrote Jesus Creed, the publisher said we thought the book would sell about five to 10,000 copies. And I think it's probably close to 100,000 copies now. Yeah. So they were shocked. I could not convince a publisher about Blue Parakeet. They didn't like the title. They didn't think that would work. And they didn't think the book would sell that much. And uh, I negotiated with them and it went out. And look, it's done really, really well. So, and they they brought out the, a revised edition and now it's in a second edition, much bigger. Um, so I don't think I don't think publishers know. I write, I, I Steve. This is this is the, the total honest truth. I write for myself. Sure. I want to put in print what I'm thinking, because I think it's worth being in print. Um, I have lots of ideas that don't show up in print. I've had book proposals rejected many times by publishers. They'll say, "No, nah, that book isn't going to sell." say it's a good idea. They'll say, yeah, we have to sell books. Um, so, uh, I don't, I don't think I get into trying to be impressive so much as hoping that this book will do far better than what it usually does.
1: All right, let's let's talk about your unique role in culture. Um, I started following Jesus Creed, man, oh man, it has to be well over a decade ago. And at some point in there, you know, you mentioned the emergent church and how that really got some attention. Some point in there, I remember watching a video of you and Brian McLaren in an interview, and it was in an effort to clarify some of his thinking. And up until that moment, I'd never seen you in a, a, a thought leader or a cultural leader role. But since then, you take a strong stand on women in ministry. Uh, most recently, you wrote very what I think was a very strong and clear and compelling prophetic word to Willow Creek Church leadership. I think a lot of people would say that it was probably your blog writing that actually... Work the leaders up to take more action. I'd love to hear from you on when you step in and when you don't, and why.
0: Yeah, uh, I wish I had uh, some kind of formula because it would be make my life a lot easier. The first time I did this, I was asked by two editors over lunch in a dark room. <laughs> it was like a speakeasy to critique John Piper and what I was calling at the time uh, neo-Calvinists and neo-reformed and I I think my blog prior to that had been very much a peacemaking effort you know try to try to be reasonable to both sides and so it was difficult and I said why and they said well You obviously don't agree with him on some of these important topics, things that he thinks is important. And you may be the only place, the only person who could actually say something that would get the attention. So I wrote, I think the first one was called those, something like those pesky Calvinists. (laughs) and I got all kinds of feedback on that. So I learned at that time that there is a place for critique. And people don't always agree with what I think needs to be critiqued. But I think they would agree with this, that I don't use my blog to blow out at people very often. And when I do, it's because I really believe I have to. So let's see, what was the first one you brought up before...
1: Yeah, you were you were moderating a conversation with Brian McLaren. He was getting quite a bit of critique.
0: Well, that was at um, that was at one of those Q conferences in Manhattan, I believe. He may have been in Chicago. No, I was in Chicago, and uh, I couldn't get him to answer my questions. And that was typical for Brian. It was typical for Rob Bell. They they just didn't want to play the game that theologians like to play. And That's the way it is. But uh, I critiqued uh, Calvinists, I critiqued Willow Creek, and oh, you saw, talked about standing up for women. Um, yeah, I have a pretty resolute commitment to speaking on behalf of women in ministry and in leadership, so I, I regularly use my blog for that. Some people don't like that. I, I stood up for that. I have stood up for science-faith discussions that are more open to the scientific field that a lot of people have uh, I critiqued Willow Creek because uh, l- Let me tell the story of how that happened. We went to Willow Creek for 10 years My son-in-law was on staff My daughter met my son-in-law there at Willow Creek in a small group. I think it was a small group and um, They attended for many many years maybe 15 I don't think 20 but it'd be close I would say so, and and I taught at Willow many times, and I have defended Willow many times, and I have been critiqued by my colleagues and friends for defending Willow over the years. But when I, when Chris and I were sitting in our house, and that article from the Chicago Tribune came across our desk because we get notified by the Chicago Tribune, I read it stunned, and Chris was reading it maybe three minutes behind me. And I was down about halfway through the article. And I said, Chris, this happened. And we, we were just stunned. And I, I said, there is no way that Vonda Dyer, uh, Nancy Ortberg, and um, Nancy Beach are going to lie about Willow Creek and about Bill Ivels.
1: And Leanne Miato as well.
0: Well, and Leanne, yeah, you know, eventually speaks up. So I said, um, I said to Chris, and then I talked to my daughter and her husband. I said, this is this is what probably is gonna happen. Bill Hybels is gonna deny this. Willow is gonna defend Bill Hybels. More women are gonna come forward. Some people at Willow will begin to believe the women. Some people at Willow will begin begin more to defend Bill. And I said, this could really get ugly and bad. So we just, I just sat on it. And one day I was speaking in Cincinnati or near Cincinnati and I was in the airport in the lounge and I was kind of irritated about it all. So I sat down and wrote out my thoughts in about 20 minutes. I sat on that, what I wrote, I gave it to my daughter and her husband and they read it and made comments, but I sat on it for about six weeks. Part of that time, I was very busy teaching and writing. And another thing that happened is we went to on a, on a biblical sites tour. And when I came back in June, I, uh, you know, within a day or two, I, I wrote to my daughter and I said, what's going on with Willow? And she said nothing. And I thought, well, something has to happen. We can't just let this float away. These women deserve a voice and no one's speaking up. And I was shocked at the number of Christian leaders, I mean, I was shocked that no Christian leaders defended the women. It was weird. And a lot of progressives who, who would otherwise have pounced on any pastor doing this, chose not to even speak. And I thought, okay, I got to say something. So I looked at that, I dusted off that blog post and thought, hey, this is pretty close to being ready. And I revised it hard and had a few people read it. And I brought it out on that one day. And and I mean, Steve, it rocked. I know. I had leaders, friends at Willow who told me every office in the whole place was talking about that blog post for about two days. Yeah. So, I Steve, the way I would put it is this, I speak when I feel, when I sense, when I'm prompted that I'm the one who needs to say something.
1: Mm, okay.
0: I don't... I don't feel any urge to speak about everything that happens. Although I have to admit, sometimes I'd like to say something, Yeah. but it needs to be thought out. And a lot of times I don't have the time to do that, but I, I do occasionally speak out. And as a result, there's a, I have a profile of the kinds of things I like and the things I don't like. And, you know, that's the way it is.
1: Yeah. My take as one of your readers, like, I'd say I'm a fan of your writing. I have been a fan of Willow Creek and benefited from their teaching and ministry. I don't know all of the women involved, but people like Nancy Beach, Nancy Ortberg, I've learned so much from them and Bill Hybel. So as somebody who's not involved, but who was actually a great benefactor of all of those people, I think what you brought to it was a clarity that that the leadership at Willow could no longer deny. That that would be my take.
0: Yeah, Steve, I think that's the exact that's the precise thing that happened. It was clear. It was clear. Um, some people thought it was mean, and others said, "No, you were just firm." Yeah, it was. It was forceful. Yep. It was compelling. Um, it came from someone who had been there, who knew the situation, but it also. I think you're exactly right. There were people at Willow who could no longer deny what what took place.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You wrote it in a way that required a response. I thought that was the genius of it.
0: Yeah. Choose the women or choose Willow's narrative. Yeah. But I will maintain forever that Willow created that problem.
1: That's right. Yeah. They should
0: never have done what they did. That's right.
1: They They
0: They said, Bill is telling the truth. The women are liars. I went, oh, boy. You just made a big mistake.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the moment they doubled down. Yeah. All right. What's it going to take, Scott, for... Okay,
0: but here's what I would say, though, also, Steve, is that I loved what Willow did. Willow has done so much good. And so many people who are still at Willow in ministry and serving are just absolutely top-level, wonderful people. Of
1: course. That's the tragedy, right?
0: Everything was stained by what happened. That's right. Uh, and it will never be the same again, but those people need to continue to serve. They also need to ask, why did I not see some of this? Yeah. They need to ask that question.
1: Yeah. All right. So I guess that's, that is leading to where I wanted to go next. What's it going to take? Let's just focus on churches. What's it going to take for church leaders to believe credible victims over protecting the asset?
0: well I think the the simplest answer is uh, is is you have to listen and you have to find someone who's trained to know uh these these stories well so I mean, I have friends who if a woman makes any accusation, they're gonna say the woman's right and the man's wrong and I have other friends uh who would say you know the women are always making these stories up. I think what we need are are attentive, psychologically sensitive people who can listen to a woman's story. And churches must immediately hand that discussion over to people who are in quest of truth rather than in quest of protection. That is where Willow made its big mistake. Right away, they wanted to figure out how to preserve Willow, protect from damage— rather than discover what really happened, and then decide what to do, regardless of what it might do to Willow. So I would say that um, that there needs to be—I I don't know if your church has elders or deacons or whatever—there needs to be, on the elder board, someone who it will be their responsibility to be analytically objective if some kind of accusation comes forward, and their job is to investigate and not to report to the pastor or anyone else, but to do a, a good search and then come to a decision this is what bring it to the elders and say this is what we have to discuss now
1: it sounds like you're you're basically also suggesting like a plan that isn't reactive but has already put in place a process
0: yeah i mean and 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 let's face it, one church after another is is working these things out if they're not, they're foolish
1: yeah. Yeah, and let's also face it, the narrative of good women coming forward, turning out to be telling the truth, is becoming so predictable when the church leadership is doubling down against them instead of believing them. That's also disturbingly predictable.
0: You know, my wife is a psychologist, Steve, and I I think she would say at least 95% of women who come forward are telling the truth. Yeah. Now, they may distort some of the truth. They may exaggerate some of the truth. But they're, it's painful for a woman to come forward. It, nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to become the center of a bullseye target. I mean, that's just not what people are made to do. They don't want to do it yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, the whole podcast is mostly focused on Christians who are in some form of leadership. It also includes parents who are trying to figure out how to lead their kids. And uh, where we start is we're trying to help people flip the dynamic from being managed by anxiety to managing it. And the first place we start is trying to notice physiologically in your body where it begins. So let's see if this, if this hits you. Uh, what we say is that anxiety either starts... In a a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut, where would it start for you? Say it again.
0: Spinning mind.
1: Yep. Racing heart, tightening gut.
0: I don't think I'm a terribly anxious person, but I would say uh, spinning mind.
1: So if you have a higher threshold than maybe others, how do you know when you're anxious?
0: Okay. That's a good question because I don't, I don't sit around thinking about this much, but yeah, you're I, welcome. <laughs> I notice I'm anxious when I wake up at night and that's where my thoughts go, to an unpleasant situation. I would say then I, I, I am certain that I'm, uh, I have some anxiety present in my life. But that's probably the number one symptom for me.
1: And then are, are you the kind of person, Scott, that sometimes somebody who's close to you has to tell you you're anxious and that's when you're more aware of it?
0: Well, sometimes Chris will say something to me. You know, you're being short, she'll say. You know, that could be because I'm, I'm 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 all tied up in some thought. You're all cerebral. Some, yeah. Or just, it's not just cerebral. It's also I'm absolutely focused on some little thing that doesn't matter. And I'm, you know, she'll say, you know you're all uptight about this. So she'll see it. But like um, my colleagues at Northern, and even at I don't remember having colleagues that would point these things out to me.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, so like in my my life, for me, it's a racing mind. I tend to get all in my head. And one of the things my wife will do is she'll just say, where are you right now? Which is her kind way of saying, you're not here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, the theory is that you can't be present to your anxiety and another person at the same time.
0: Well, I think that's right, and I, uh, I would be a person. I, okay, I would say that my aloofness, my non-presence is not very often a sign of anxiety so much as it is just lost in thoughts.
1: I'm yeah. a writer. I'm yeah. a writer
0: and a thinker and a reader and I get to thinking about something and I just start thinking about it. And Chris will say to me, you know, I don't think she says, where are you? But she'll say, you're not here. And I'll go,
1: yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're off in some wonderful world of ideas. Uh, let's try this one. This is the most personal question I ask. When do you feel most loved in your life?
0: Uh, I think, in many ways, I would say always uh I don't feel unloved um, probably because I had a pretty affirming family when I grew up, though they weren't vocally affirming, I knew they were, and I'm pretty independent. I'm an independent cuss. How's that? So, um, but like when Chris and I will be walking together, talking, sitting together, you know, we're we're pretty, we're pretty much stuck to our home, so we stay home a lot, and we have very relaxed evenings. Um, I don't find, uh, let's say, speaking, preaching, writing affirmations. To be something that makes me feel like I'm loved. I think it. I I think it's nice. I feel affirmed. I feel grateful that I've had these gifts that can be helpful to people. But I don't think that I'm attached to it as a as a love language. Be, and because if they don't like it, it doesn't bother me that much either. So it's um, but affirmation. I, I feel I feel it in that way.
1: I, my early preaching, I, my identity was pretty wrapped up you know, in my own perception of my performance and people's feedback. It's pretty disturbing. I remember John Ortberg telling a story about Dallas Willard, his ability to get up and teach or preach and then just walk off completely unbothered by how he did or how people received him. I was always, I always really admired that. That's kind of what you're describing that your identity is not connected closely to your delivery or your performance.
0: Uh, yeah. And in that way, uh, Dallas is quite a unique individual in that way. I, um, I don't like it when I'm speaking, teaching, and I feel like I'm not connecting. So, if people are going to sleep, or if I think, boy, this is not working, I adjust. I don't say to myself, these people are stupid. They should be, <laughs> they, they're just not with me because yeah. they're not smart enough. I, I have professors, professor friends who are that way, and they, they think everybody should be where they are, that it's just such a self uh, intoxicating feature of their approach to teaching. But um, uh, so I strive to be a better communicator, uh, but um, yeah.
1: This I, is, yeah, this is fascinating to me, Scott, because I don't have many academics on the show. And when you're describing an academic saying, I'm not connecting to these people, therefore they're stupid. That's hilarious to me as a preacher, because when I'm up preaching, I'm what I say is I'm not connecting to these people because I'm stupid.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just, no, I, I would say I'm not doing, getting my job done. Here. Yeah. You know, I'm, there's something that's not working here. I, and I adjust when I see that going on, I, I, I got change. Mm. I've said in classes, this obviously is not connecting with you. What's going on here. Yeah. And the students, you know, are not afraid to tell you, especially when I had college students, they were not afraid. They'd say, "Oh, who cares about this? You know? Yeah.
1: What, what relevance does it have to my life? Yeah. 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 Okay uh kind of a similar question then what activities or places make you feel most human and alive
0: well a lot of a lot of different things uh i a couple you know i we like to walk and see the world uh visit the world travel so that's one area traveling is just such a stimulating thing we just we were just in ireland this fall and it was it was I just loved it. We loved what, what, how it worked out. Um, I, we love nature. So I love to spot birds and ducks. Uh, so, you know, I, that to me is a great thrill to spot these things, to see them, see the, the variety of animals in the world. Um, sports, uh, we, I grew up in a locker room. My father was a coach. My wife's father was a coach. Uh, I played basketball with her brothers. So, uh, sports has always been very stimulating, makes me feel alive. I think reading certain kinds of writers is just so uh, satisfying to me. I love Joseph Epstein, a Jewish writer. I love to read. I've read about 25 of his books. Uh, I like. Um, Willa Cather's novels. She's a new discovery for me in the last few years. I just love reading her her books.
1: Great. Uh, this, this final question, um, this mailman at work, let's try it and see. In, uh, in managing leadership anxiety, 50% of it is helping a leader notice what's going on under the surface in their own life. The other half is, is really family systems theory in leadership, learning how to notice anxiety in a group. So, not so much inside yourself, but as you're leading a team of people paying attention to how people are relating. And our theory is that people catch anxiety the way you catch a cold. It's contagious. Have you ever had a situation where you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group? Totally,
0: And then ask me for a specific, and now I can't remember any. Um, my wife, uh, Chris, is a psychologist who is is very alert to... Social systems and system theory. So over the years, she's explained a lot of things to me, and uh, I've often said, "I I don't think I could have ever survived teaching at Trinity, apart from her help in understanding the people who I was working with, who were very difficult to work with at times." Um, so I've seen it in classes where you know, let's just say, I perceive suddenly and I've seen this even on my new Facebook pages for my classes, where it's very clear there's anxiety about some quiz or some test or some assignment is not clear, and I perceive it, and and I'll say, hey, we need to back off here. Let's figure out what's going on. Just say it. I'm your teacher. I'm here to help you. I'm not here to to test you. Uh, So, I mean, I, I would see it. I see it in classes where assignments and um issues are difficult to comprehend i've been in groups where i was teaching something that i was pretty sure most of the people in the room did not like i was going to keep going but i you'd have to back off and say you know i know you're not all agreeing with this but let me explain myself first that sort of thing so yeah i've seen that um I was I was just thinking, backing up because I was talking about Chris. When you talk about feeling most human, you know, when we're with our fa- when we're with our kids and grandkids all together, there's a there's a reality there that's that's just us. That transcends, you know. Chris is the grandma. I'm the grandpa. My son and my daughter, their spouses, our grandkids. It's just a, it's a, it's such a delightful, splendid environment. It doesn't happen all the time. We see them at church on Sundays, all of them when they come and when we are all together. So that's another part of feeling deeply human.
1: The reason I ask that question, I always want to hear people's response. But I think a lot of church leaders, particularly, you know, we we conflate. The uh, feeling like God's employee instead of God's child. And I, th- I think just really uncovering what makes you feel human and alive is a, a great way to manage leadership tension. So thanks for that answer. Scott, I, I could ask you questions forever, but I'm going to respect your time and, and say thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Steve. Good to talk to you.
1: If you found the podcast beneficial, you can help us out by subscribing to make sure every episode is delivered straight to you. You can also take 30 seconds and leave us an honest review on iTunes. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.